going to be Ravami Tal's yard site in Chodesh Tammuz. Towards the end of Tammuz. So I wanted to try to capture something a little different about Ravami Tal's Torah. Ravami Tal obviously shared a lot of Machava and a lot of Torah, but he also told a lot of stories. And stories are very impactful. You remember stories. And in ways sometimes you don't remember ideas. And also stories help make ideas much more concrete. When people speak about ideas, the real question is, is it, does it penetrate down to reality, to your life? Or these are, go to a share, you listen to an idea, you get very interested in the idea. But how do you then make sure that you're implementing those ideas when you go into your daily life? That's really the question of development and of identity, is to try to fasten ideas to real life. So stories have a way of making ideas more concrete and more vivid and more graphic, because you can imagine yourself being Matala or Yankala or the person in the story. So I wanted to share with you some of Ramitel's well-known stories and then how they impacted me because obviously stories impact people differently. So who's to know how other people were impacted, but it's impossible. But how did it impact me? So of course you all know the famous story. I'm not going to repeat that, but that just shows the power of a story. The baby crying. All you have to mention is the baby crying. It's almost a cliche. It's such a powerful story because you can all imagine yourself in that situation. You want to learn, you're doing a mitzvah, there's some... How many times have you had that exact situation? How many times have you heard a baby crying on a plane or a baby crying in the base medrash and your first instinct may have been to shush or to be disturbed, to be annoyed? And all of a sudden that story enters into your imagination. You say, wait a second, let's see if I can help carry the carriage, help quiet the baby. I'm on planes and I'm holding babies big families get on the planes and so it just highlights and illustrates the power of a story but people don't know a different story of Amitel told in that setting what was that setting? that setting was when he was meeting with the first group of boys who were considering the yeshiva in 1968 and there was a parlor meeting whether they wanted to come to Gush these are students such as Yaakov Medan the first group and such as Uzi Friedlach and they were considering, should we come to yeshiva? And they said, well, what will make you yeshiva unique? So he told them the baby crying story. This yeshiva will be sensitive to the cry of the baby, namely to serve in the army and answer the cry of Amisrael's baby's needs. But he told them another story. That's the story I'll tell you today. It's a classic fable about uh, a yid in Russia who gets caught stealing, gets thrown into jail. They call the Rebbe. The Rebbe comes into jail to help him out. Two, three months later, the same poor Jew gets caught stealing again and gets tossed into a jail cell. They called the Rebbe. The Rebbe comes into the jail cell and says, Obviously, you have uh, an addiction. I also have addictions. Takes him out of jail. Three, four months later, the same Jew gets caught a third time stealing. They called the Rebbe. Again, these stories, I may be changing bits here and there. It's not like a toast, so you can go back and look at the original text. These are stories that would live about best. So I hope I'll capture the gist of them. Three, four months later, same Chassid gets caught stealing, tossed into jail, called the Rebbe. The Rebbe says, well, obviously, you're a kleptomaniac. People have problems in life, and he consoles him, and he comforts him, and he walks him out of jail. A few months later, the Rebbe dies. So they appoint his son as a successor. A couple months after the succession in the Leviah, the same Chassid gets caught a fourth time stealing, tossed into jail. They say, call the Rebbe. The Rebbe's dead. Or call his son. The son comes with bursting into the jail cell, lambasting this chassid. How dare you? Such an insult to my father's memory. He was there for you, loyal for your needs, and this is how you repay his 
this is your gratitude. You should rot in jail for a little bit to understand the, 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 the severity of your crimes, and then maybe I'll bail you out in a few hours, a few days. And this poor chassid starts bawling. He says, you don't understand, Rebbe. You don't understand. I'm a ganav. I'm not a tzaddik. He says, you, you're a Rebbe for tzaddikim. It's easy to be Rebbe's for tzaddikim. But I'm a ganav. I'm a Russia. I don't need a Rebbe for tzaddikim. Your father, oh, here's a Rebbe for a shayim. I, I'm a ganav. I don't need you. It's easy to be a Rebbe for tzaddikim. I want a Rebbe for a shayim. Your father, oh, here's a Rebbe for a shayim. I need your father. So Rav Amital turned to the Talmidim and said, there are plenty of yeshivas for tzaddikim. I want to open a yeshiva for a shayim. That's what he evidently told them. Okay. So what does this story mean? So in, in the Hasidic constellation, in the constellation of Hasidus, it of course means that the role of the Rebbe was not just to hobnob with tzaddikim and study Talmud Torah, but to be there and, and one of Hasidus's great revolutions is carving out space even for people who weren't tzaddikim in the classic sense and weren't tamide chachamim in the classic sense, fallen people, the Rebbe's job is to be... There's a lot to talk about. We talked about it in the past. I'm not here to repeat all the, the Hasidic lore. But what I think it meant to Rav Amital in terms of his yeshiva were two things. So this is my takeaway. Again, it's hard to know what he meant, but this is, my, this is how the story has impacted me over the last 40 years. Number one is... How can you open a yeshiva that's as broad as possible? I think a word a lot of people like to use with yeshiva is we have a stark yeshiva. Our yeshiva is stark. You're stark. I'm stark. There's an exclusive nature to that. My famous machlokas of Shammai and Hillel. Who should come to yeshiva? Shammai had four qualifications for entering into yeshiva. You have to be smart, humble, pedigreed, and um, rich. If you're not smart, you'll distort it. If you're not humble, you'll pervert it. If you're not pedigreed, you won't understand its nature. If you're not rich, you'll prostitute it for profit. So, there's a sense that we want the stark boys in yeshiva. And Hillel said, let's teach as many people Torah as possible. The day that they deposed Rabbi Gamliel, they added hundreds of benches to the base matters. So there's always a tension in the world of Torah, in the world of yeshivos, do you go more narrow or more broad? I think in today's world, there's been a tendency towards narrowing the field, even though yeshivas are now mega yeshivos. But that word stark is, let's get all of the stark guys. We want the stark guys in yeshiva. We don't want to be in any way disturbed or disrupted by non-stark guys. And I don't think that's how Rav Amitav viewed his yeshiva. How can I create a yeshiva that's broad enough to have boys from Melbourne and boys from London and boys from Tinak and boys Israelis and, and boys at different stages and, and Nabar Hashem special needs and then there's some boys whose sense of excellence is learning Talmud Torah and other boys whose sense of excellence is climbing through the army ranks and, and it's hard. It's hard to maintain a yeshiva that has such a sweep and such a spectrum and such a variety. But it's easy to be a Rebbe for a tzaddikim. It's easy to have a yeshiva for a tzaddikim. It's easy to just have a shark yeshiva and just stand at the door and, and disqualify and, and exclude those who aren't stark. On the other hand, if yeshiva is too broad and too sweeping, then there won't be a pitch and intensity. And so Ramitel always, I think, felt the yeshiva should have a, a sweep to try to embrace all types of people. I think the second thing, and again, he never said these things, but hearing him speak so often, I connected it to this story, is we get we fall very quickly into these traps of, okay, who are the tzaddikim and who are the rishayim? Raise your hand if you're a tzaddik, raise your hand if you're a rasha. Sit at your welcome in the base matters, and you know who the stark boys are, and the tzaddikim boys, and the rishayim. 
And certainly in the modern sense that we, we view identity, we all have moments. There's no tzaddik, there's no Russia. We all have moments. It's very caustic, it's very judgmental. So he's the tzaddik, he's the Russia. There are moments we act like a tzaddik, and quite frankly, there are moments we act like a Russia every day of our lives. And hopefully the balance has shifted in Russia. Not that we go murder anyone or, 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 or burn anyone's house down, but evidently the, the, there are moments in our life we come up short. So this sense of, well, who's the tzaddik? And Rebellion tells us, I'll open his ear for a shayim. Namely, stop with this preening, which can become very offensive and very exhibitionist and very self-aggrandizing. I'm the tzaddik, and we're the tzaddik. And he, I remember Rav Amital called me in the day I started teaching. The first day, he gave him my marching orders. And so now your teacher says, whatever you do, and it's a famous line, but maybe he told to me, whatever you do, don't let the tzaddikim ruin the yeshiva. Why? Because it's always the, bat, the more driven boys in yeshiva that get into the space where they know exactly what's wrong with yeshiva. They know exactly how to reform the yeshiva. They're fanatical. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's exclude this one. Let's make this list. Let's make... And it gets to the point, and that's what it means to be 18, 19, 20, 25, where there's a lot of zeal and a lot of... Last week's parsha where Yeshua wants Moshe to incarcerate Aldana Medad, and then you realize that even those people, sometimes it's the people that are the most vocal, that shout the loudest, they're the biggest Rishayim, because they're covering up certain deficiencies and insecurities by trying to appear fanatical, to appear so from in everyone's eyes, even, maybe even in their own eyes. So that's what that story meant to me. Number one is, how can you have a yeshiva? It's broad. Number two is, stop with this, who is the tzaddik, who is the rasha? We meet many people in our lives, and everyone gives us certain moments of sickness and moments of rasha. So we'll see how, how far we can take this, how many stories they can uncover, and how they change our lives. Okay? So today's story is actually not one of the more well-known ones. I don't think it was written up anywhere. Typically, stories we like very famous ones. People spoke them very often, or they're written up. This is a story I haven't really heard people say that often. It's not written up, as far as I can tell, in any of the spadim or any of the books. But to me, it's my favorite story, and also probably is the story that had the greatest impact upon my life. So let me tell you what the story was, the setting, and then how it emerged in my life, and you'll get the power of a story and how it lasts with people and shapes people. So it was around 1988, and we were in yeshiva. And the first intifada broke out. This was not an intifada of bombings and terror. This was an intifada of, of a lot of protests and stone throwing. So uh, it was a very different feel, but the army needed massive manpower. So in order to meet, because there were protests in all the Palestinian villages, all these villages had large-scale protests, common protests, throwing stones. So you just needed a lot of protest uh, riot control. Well, it wasn't, uh, wasn't heavy army military work, but it was riot control. So the yeshiva drafted all the Hesder guys back into the army. In those days, you did your army service in split service. You went for a year to yeshiva, I think, then a year to the army, then six months back in yeshiva, then six months back in the army. It was just a different split, I forget exactly. But by the time you and your Shana Dalit or so, you would finish your service, and you were back in yeshiva more or less the same way it is today, that those last two years. And they took all those boys back to the army. So it was very frustrating. It was very annoying to have already been in the army twice, been li- liberated, not liberated, but been you know, released from the army, and now you got to go back in, and it was Erev Pesach, so Erev Pesach was very depressing for the boys, because they would not be able to keep a Seder, to have a proper Seder, they have to have a quick shotgun Seder in the army, so you could tell there was a palpable sense of depression in the yeshiva, it was really, 
you could feel it. It was, it was as I said, palpable. So Atish, Ravamithel, told us the following story. He said, when I was in a concentration camp, I didn't have Shabbos. I think they let us keep Shabbos. I think they let us even behave differently on Shabbos. Shabbos is a regular day. So I had no way to mark Shabbos. So I had a little white shirt that I kept with me throughout all the concentration camps. And every Arab Shabbos, I would fold that white shirt, put it into my pocket, go out and join the work detail, work however many hours we were working. They worked well past sunset. And when sunset came, I would slither off to the side, whatever, making believe I was t- tending to my needs, whatever we would do, we'd take a minute off to the side and put on a white shirt and be Makabal Shabbos. And then go back to work. And then, no choice, but at least that was his Kabbal Shabbos. And he said, you, in your lives, your Shabbos is diffuse. He didn't use this word, obviously. But part of you, you feel part of your Shabbos through the songs you sing, and part of your Shabbos through the food you eat, and part of the Shabbos through the family you spend time with, and part of the Shabbos. My entire Shabbos was concentrated in that white shirt, and I felt it so deeply. And what was he telling the story? He was telling the Chayalim who were going to be in the army for the Seder. He says, normally your Seder is four, five, six hours long, family, story, secrets, yes, but so I am. You're going to have a 15-minute Seder. It's going to be compact. It's going to be undernourished. You're not going to have all the resources you normally have. You have quick matzah, quick mara. But your entire Seder will be expressed to that 15 minutes. Just like my entire Shabbos was expressed to that white shirt, and you'll feel Hashem's presence. And you can feel, it's like magic in the room. You can feel that I have lifted all this worry and all this depression from the Tamidim by providing the following message. Here's my takeaway message. Sometimes you have everything you want for important days, Shabbos and Yantif, your family, your reason. Sometimes Hashem puts you into a situation where you don't have all the resources, human resources, material resources, and then you have to take whatever you have, concentrate on that, and allow that to stream all your emotions. And sometimes, ironically, the less you have, the more you have. He felt, he felt Shabbos so did not just if you weren't in the concentration camp, not concentration, it's good to be in the concentration camp, but if you weren't, then it would have been an average Shabbos splintered across 15 or 16 different pressure points. But now there was a white shirt, and he felt Shabbos deeply through that white shirt, and now you're in the army, and you have a 15-minute Seder before you run out to patrol, and you have less, but in some ways you have more, and you just have to take stock of the resources you do have available and concentrate on them and, and, and intensify those. Okay, so here's the story after the story. Um, some, some years back, my wife was very sick. Baruch Hashem, it was a very, very difficult moment for us and very emotionally charged. It was, wasn't a simple illness. And it's very quick, like there was, uh, there was a threat, and, and thank God we were able to overcome whatever illness she had, and thank God she was recovering in the hospital. It wasn't a long, drawn-out. It was very quick, which means it was very sudden, and you were very overwhelmed emotionally. And I went to spend the hospital, Shabbos with her in the hospital. And coming to Shabbos, coming to hospitals in Israel for Shabbos is a very, very eerie feeling. Because if you're in a hospital in Chutzlaris, it's a normal staff. Obviously the Jews have food and candles. And, but in Israel, everyone's leaving Dodge City. Everyone's leaving. There's a skull in the staff for Shabbos. But essentially there's a mass em- migration. So when you're walking in at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, you feel the hospital's emptying out. It's not like no one's there, but you feel... There's a tremendous shift, and it's a skeleton staff on Shabbos, and you feel it's Shabbos. And so here I am carrying a basket, literally this size, the size of my hands. I'm going to carry it. It's four feet apart, lot, two pieces of fish, two pieces of schnitzel, two challahs, uh, two cans of soda, and I'm walking into what I think is going to be a hard Shabbos emotionally, ghost town. And keep in remember, in Israel, you don't have a hospital room, you have a hospital alleyway. 
Each room is divided in three or four, and there's a curtain that separates, and you literally have no room. You certainly can't sleep there. Your beloved, you know, your, your relative, you have to find somewhere else to It's not pleasant. It's not an easy way sitting in the room reading books and reading newspapers, talking over Shabbos. So I walk into my wife's little, little cubicle. Not even a cubicle. It's not even separated by a wall. It's separated just by a curtain. People bang into your... I walk into your cubicle with a little puny basket of food, and there she is having cleaned up her little area, holding a white flower that one of the nurses had given out to come around Arab Shabbos and give out flowers to people. Each person gets one flower. She looks at me, she says, gives me the flower, and she says, this will be our white shirt for Shabbos. So 20 years after I told her that story for the first time, it's stuck in her mind, and this was going to be, again, chas how could you compare Shabbos in the hospital in Israel to Shabbos in the concentration camp? But the structure was the same. It's going to be a challenge Shabbos. We're not going to have that much. It's going to be hard for us. But we'll invest in what we have, and we'll feel it in some ways even more deeply. So we both broke down crying, you know, remembering of Amital's story. And so that's the power of a story, is it creates associations that are very graphic and emotional. You put yourself into that person's shoes, and you're able to feel what they felt in a way that sometimes abstract ideas have a harder time being as compelling. Okay? That's Ramitel's white shirt. I, I don't see people talking about it that much, but to me it was a very, very powerful story. Okay? I mentioned before, I'm sure in some context, the famous, famous Sicha of Lichtenstein about Mordechai and Esther that changed my life and going into Chinuch and the famous, exquisite, hour-long Sicha. And Rav Amitel's inspiration to me to go into Chinuch came from a story. Very quiet story, but some said Rav Amitel conveyed of Chinuch and the importance of Chinuch. He was traveling home, he told us once, from Tel Aviv to Yushalayim, and he heard a news report on the radio. It's before, obviously, internet is in the 60s, maybe even late 50s, but probably early 60s. And it was a report of a fire in a multi-story building in New York City, multi-towered building. And the children were assembled by the window of this upper story, and their parents had gathered beneath on the street below, and the fire department had arrived with mattresses and rescue um, apparatus. And the parents were begging the children, jump, jump, you'll save your life, jump out of the window. And the children were too frightened to jump. And because they were too frightened, they died of smoke inhalation or they were consumed by the fire. It was not clear, but they died. Whereas the parents were devastated that the children couldn't listen to them and jump. Obviously, they were frightened. And he saw this as a metaphor. He saw this that. There's always, a, there's always a, a gap between generations. And sometimes it's sad that a younger generation doesn't understand the language of the older generation. Not just the message, but the language and the culture and the cultural setting. And that here the older generation had information that could have saved the lives, or at least had a decision that could have saved the lives of the younger children. But they just couldn't convey that to them because they were too locked in by their fright and their fear as youngsters. And he said, what a pity it is that you don't share a common language and you can't convey important information. He said he drove home that night and he arrived in his community in Givat Mordechai, where he lived, right near the Hebron Yeshiva. And on his way home, there was a fire in one of the apartment buildings in Givat Mordechai. Obviously a fire, not a conflagration, right? The, the, 
buildings in Israel are made from stone, so it's not like it was going up in smoke like it would be in London or in, 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 in Kutzlaris, but there's fire nonetheless, and there was an elderly woman who was asleep in her room, and she could have been seriously imperiled by smoke inhalation. So he banged on the window, and he was able to help her get out and escape the fire. Same day. Same day he heard the report about the fire in New York, there was a fire in Give Up Mordechai. And he said he saw this as a sign from HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he did have the language that those parents didn't have in New York City. And he did have a language that would help others escape the fire, metaphorically. And that emboldened him, which is reinforced the sense that he had to start a yeshiva and teach the younger generation Torah. So what I took away from these, this story, aside from the obvious, that's important to go into Chinuch, as my Rebbe had thought about it, was twofold. First of all, we no longer live in an age of prophecy, of supernatural information. Hashem doesn't appear to us in dreams, and that's gone, but Hashem still speaks to us. And we have to learn how to interpret that, and at least, how to at least be sensitive to it. And Ramamitol thought that Hashem was speaking to him. Hashem was giving him an indication of where he should direct his life and his resources. Let's be careful, because people who think Hashem speaks to them could sometimes go off the rails a little bit, and start to imagine things and start to say, well, this is what I'm sure Hashem wants from me. But So you can't be too um, direct and precise. This is what Hashem told me to wake up at 12 o'clock today and uh, be the Mashiach or to have scrambled eggs or whatever. I have to be very careful about interpreting in general. But Hashem speaks to people. I remember when Ramitel taught us the Kuzari, I mentioned this earlier in the year. He talked about that a little bit. The Kuzari king has a dream in which a Malach comes to him and says, your internal motivation for religion is appropriate, but your actions aren't. And he sees this as a sign that he should launch a, a study and an inquiry of different religions. So people receive messages from Hashem even in a non-prophetic era. And the second issue is Rav Amitav was always conscious that every generation has its own tonality to religion and to culture and to Torah. And he says that in terms of a language, there's a language in each generation. And you always have to struggle to understand the language and the cultural setting of each generation. Because if not, then you're outdated and your messages simply are, are irrelevant and artificial and they don't penetrate people's hearts if you're not able to understand what language to speak. And I don't mean English or Hebrew or French, but what cultural language to convey. And that's basically the drive for starting this yeshiva. Because he thought that the Lithuanian model of yeshivas just wasn't relevant for the post-World War II era. He was wrong. He was wrong in terms of the Haredi sector because they were able to lock in a classic Lithuanian style of learning, at least for the meantime, and find it highly successful. But at least in our world, he felt that just replicating the Lithuanian model, and at least in Israel, wouldn't be. And he basically built Hezder. He launched the concept of Hezder, which has Lithuanian influence. And Ravarin always thought it should be like the Russian, but it's very, very different on many fronts. Obviously serving in the army, obviously learning more Machshav and Tanakh, obviously being um, located in, in far-off places. So it, it was a very sense of, you can't just teach Torah like you taught Torah 20, 35 years ago. There's an ebb and a flow of each generation. You need to understand their, their language. I remember towards the end of his life, he, he felt, he would say that generations used to take 25 years to change. Be, every 25 years would be a generation. He says, now it feels like more for six, seven years. Every six, seven years is a new generation. I wonder what he would say today. I have the feeling every three, four years, things change so fast and cultural milieus alter so rapidly that you have to constantly be updated or at least think about it. It doesn't mean you have to immerse yourself in culture, but at least think about otherwise your messages will go stale and they'll just become outdated and obsolete. So this is what I took from the story. Number one, Hashem speaks to us. Number two, 
that you have to make sure that you speak in a language that people understand, not just in your own. Sometimes Rabbanim speak to themselves, and it's very hard to imagine that people really find it as personal and as inspiring. Okay? There's a big question in education. Use a baseball metaphor. So should you swing for the fences when you play baseball? You can try to hit the ball as far as you can. If you hit the ball over the wall, it's called the home run. It's extra points. But when you try to hit the ball so far, you can strike out a lot. So that translates into a real educational question: What type of model do you build? Should you try to swing for the fences and try to create gedolim and try to push people with aspiration and ambition and intention and achievement? But the cost in human toll is very high. Because when people are pushed beyond their limits, first of all, you create an environment in which it's an all-or-nothing binary equation. If you're not a gadol, you're not ultra-uber-successful, then you see yourself as a failure. It can lead to a lot of emotional stress and emotional frustration. Rev. Iron would always quote to us the story of John Stuart Mills, who was a 19th century utilitarian author. And evidently he was teaching his younger brother Latin at the age of six. He was six. Five he was teaching his brother, and one of them, I forget which one, had a nervous breakdown. I think it was John Stuart Mills himself. So when you push people so hard, you can compromise the emotional well-being. Emotional well-being is a state of human condition we become more sensitive to in the modern era. 200 years ago, we had very little clue into the human psyche, how humans operated, what human happiness was. Human happiness was you fit into the cosmic order. You knew your place in the cosmos. And now we're much more existentialist. We've deconstructed human psyche. And we want to try to build well-being, self-esteem, emotional happiness as a platform for religious achievement. So, to a degree, Rav Lichnesin and Rav Amitav were a little bit different in this respect. Rav Lichnesin was sort of a, was a spence swinger, and he pushed us and challenged us. I'm not trying to make it binary, but Rav Amitav was always proud of the fact that his tradition in Hungary, his tradition was more to create healthy, happy balabatim. Not necessarily to great gedolim, and to a degree, it was reflective. The great gedolim tended to emerge from the Lithuanian yeshivos, from Slobodka, from those yeshivos, and the Hungarian environment produced a lot of healthy balabatim, but not in the same sense. Again, it's much more Hasidish. It's comparing apples and bowling balls. A little bit different to talk about the gedolim here, gedolim here. It's, it's, there were a lot of gedolim in Hungary, but they're Hasidish. In any event, Ravalmital was very proud of that, and to a degree, it informed the yeshiva. He tried to create a yeshiva where many gedolim emerged from the yeshiva, but at least there was a curriculum and a framework that allowed for health, well-being, emotional happiness, satisfaction with religion across the board to as many to them as possible, as opposed to, let's say, some of the more powerhouse yeshivas in Europe that were gadol factories, but maybe at the cost for many people who were emotionally distressed or went off the derech, and those are two very different approaches, but... Obviously, when you try to create one singular aspirational model, it's easier for people who don't fit to feel excluded, easier for people who feel excluded to walk away from the entire enterprise. So Ravamitel felt very proud of that as a Rosh Hashiva, and certainly proud of that as a father and as a family member. We talked about how he had raised his children. And certainly in my own life, I'll tell a particular aspect of the story, but when I've tried to navigate with my own children, and whatever I felt that there was an issue that really late at that scene between achievement and happiness, I always try to decide with happiness, knowing that long-term I would create healthy, emotionally well-adjusted people that would then be able to become more religious in a gradual fashion. Anyway, the story, the story that he always tried to tell stories about, the Rami tells stories, the story he always told us was his attending a bris of a relative of his in the Haredi world. 
and the little boy was called Tuvia. That was the name they applied to the boy. But during all the speeches, everyone started referring to this eight-year-old baby as Tuvia Eloi. Tuvia Eloi. Eloi means the brilliant one, the great Tamatacham. So at some point, Rav Amital went over to his relatives and said, did I miss something? I thought the boy's name was Tuvia. So they said, no, he should get used to hearing himself called an Eloi. We want the boy to get accustomed to hearing himself called an Eloi at the ripe old age of eight days old. So evidently, Rav Amital said he went ballistic. He said, no, that's not when he spoke. He said, just grew up to be a happy, well-adjusted Balabas. who's an Ayin Hashem, who's a Shemayim, who's an Ayin Yisrael. And whatever more you can accomplish, that's obviously a goal, but it has to come on the baseline of just happy, well-rounded um, adjustment. And, and before you be an Eloi, just be a Tobia, as it were. Just before you're an Eloi, just be a, a well-adjusted young man. And he told us another story, which I forget right now, but it's very similar to that. And as I said, it's informed my life, both as a Rebbe as well as as a parent. But also as an uncle, because at one of my nephews, Bar Mitzvahs, his name is Asher, Ashin Tarragon, and you can ask him this, he's very proud of this story. So some of the uncles, I have to say from the other side, but some of the uncles got up and were describing how he should be a gadol, and a great, great person, and aspirations and achievements, but you obviously, you obviously want to heap all these expectations on a bar mitzvah boy without making it too burdensome, but you want to give him a little thrust, a little boost. And at some point, in a very innocent way, again, it wasn't a sinister, but to me it just reminded me of the Ramitel story. One of the uh, family members said, and it's now time for you to be a bar mitzvah, to stop being a child, to be an adult, and you can't have, no more chocolates for you, no more chocolates. This is my Ramitel moment. So I got up as the uncle and said, trust me, I have a different Masora. I learned with a great person named Ramitel, and he told me that first, become a happy person. And I said, Ashi, I want you to continue eating chocolates even faster your bar mitzvah. So he laughed about it, but that became almost like a mantra that whenever he saw me, he said, don't worry, Uncle Mesh, I'm still eating my chocolates. So at his Ufruf, when I gave a speech, obviously 10 or so years later, I gave a speech to him, and I gave him a Torah, and I said, Ashi, very happy you listened to my advice, and I gave him a chocolate. I said, now you're on your own, but now I can trust you to eat your own chocolates. So the Rav Amitals version is, don't call your child to be Eloi, the Moshe Tarragon version is keep eating chocolates. But it's the same thing. It's, a, it's an approach to education. Obviously, each person will dose it differently and will calibrate it differently. But the great toll you can you can um, exact and pay if you push people to the point where they feel choked and they feel like they have to succeed. If they don't succeed, they're absolute abject failure. You may pay a price. You may pay a price in achievement. But in terms of the human toll, and not achieving one on the or by trampling human hearts, I think it's certainly a worthwhile, worthwhile perspective. That's the Tokyo Eloy story. Okay.